Our New Testament reading for today comes from uh, the book of Matthew. You'll find this on page 10 of your uh, worship folder. Um, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Matthew chapter uh, 11, verses 1 through 15. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence taken it by force. Or the violent have taken by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray for us as we um, reflect on God's word. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks um, for the gift of your word. And, Father, we recognize that what we're about to do here, uh, apart from your spirit, uh, will not profit us at all. But by your spirit, you will speak. So work now in our midst uh, to teach us something new, to remind us of things that that we've heard maybe all our lives but, but need to hear again, and ultimately, Father, to point us to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In whose name we pray. Amen. Several years back, a movie was released uh, that was entitled Doubt. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil it for you. Because um, it's about a decade old, and about, at that point, I mean, come on, you, uh, what, are you, what are you doing here? Um, it's a fantastic film, uh, nominated for all sorts of award, uh, awards, and, and the movie lives up to its title. Um, because it leaves you in doubt. The story tells of an older nun, Sister Aloysius which, by the way, is a great nun name. Um, it just sounds kind of, I don't know. Um, anyway, Meryl Streep performs her, and she plays to perfection uh, the, the caricature of a religious person that we all love to hate. Uh, everyone's afraid of her. She's rigid and uptight, self-righteous, lacking any compassion whatsoever. 
And, and the story builds as this nun begins to saw, uh, serve alongside a new priest, Father Flynn, uh, played by the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Father Flynn represents a new day and age for the church. It's a, it's a kinder, gentler church. His sermons are relevant and, and challenging. He's, he's likable and, and genuinely funny. He comes in as the hero. You want to root for him as he squares off against the nun's angry fundamentalism. But as the movie progresses, doubts begin to, to surface about him, particularly as it relates to matters that have come to light over the uh, last several decades with the Roman Catholic Church. We never know for sure if the allegations against Father Flynn are true. And, th- and that gets to the point of the movie. We don't know. But Sister Aloysius, despite any real proof, is convinced with absolute certainty that he has behaved inappropriately and is willing to do whatever it takes for his removal, which he's able to accomplish. But in a, a moving final scene, we find this nun who prides herself on her certainty, tearfully confessing that she too has doubts. And the reason this is such a, a climactic moment of the film is because Sister Aloysius has been associated with certainty. Whether the subject is, is right versus wrong, the, the, the good people versus the bad people, even as it relates to who God is, the, the old guard kind of way of thinking about God versus this new day and age. She knows the capital T truth. And so doubting really isn't much of an option for her. And for a number of Christians, maybe for us even in this room, whether we say it out loud or not, whether we even realize it about ourselves, because we hold to the notion of of truth as it relates to matters of God and Jesus, Scripture, morality, spirituality, whatever, and because faith is the assurance of things unseen, the conviction of Uh, assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things unseen. That's from Hebrews chapter 11. What can then follow is that because we believe in truth, doubt isn't really an option for us. We're supposed to know what we believe and approach that with absolute certainty and and to experience doubt, therefore, is tantamount to, to like a denial of the faith. Now, to be fair, Scripture does not always portray doubt in the most positive light. One, one verse that sticks out uh, is from James, James chapter 6. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We also see Jesus. He rebukes the disciples for their doubting. One notable instance being the, the walking on water incident with Peter. We could even argue that, that, that the first sin came about by, by Satan coming into the garden with Adam and Eve and, and making them doubt the nature and word of God. And, and so doubt doesn't really seem to be a very good thing. And yet, the Bible also goes out of its way to acknowledge the reality of God's people doubting. Whether we're talking about Job, Jeremiah, the psalmists, or the individual we're going to take a look at today, John the Baptist. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller actually challenges believers to think differently 
on the subject of doubt. Making the argument that, that a faith without doubt is like a human body without antibodies in it. It's defenseless when it comes under attack. His point is that, that it's important for Christians to have asked tough questions so that when trouble strikes, they will have thought through them. And so what I want us to do today uh, for a few minutes is, is to take a look at the subject of faith and doubt in light of what we just read in Matthew chapter 11. So that we might have a greater understanding, greater even appreciation of doubt. We might even come to see what Alfred Lord Tennyson referred to as the, the sunnier side of doubt. The title of today's sermon is Benefit of the Doubt. And the way I want to go about this is, is to ask three questions. These will serve as your three points for today. First of all, what is doubt? Like, what do we mean by this term? Uh, what does the Bible kind of altogether have to say about it? Second, why might we, might we experience doubt? And, and then lastly, what should we do with our doubts? Okay, first of all, what, what is doubt? Second, why might we experience doubt? Third, what should we do with our doubts? Okay, first, what do we mean by doubt? Our Old Testament reading for the day, book of Malachi, uh, we, we saw Malachi communicating to the nation of Israel that one day another prophet like Elijah previous prophet back in the day, would come and would prepare the people for the, for the arrival of the Messiah. In verse 14 of what we just read, Matthew, Jesus clearly identifies John the Baptist as this person. He's the guy, okay? He's the guy Malachi was talking about. Now, so far in the life of John the Baptist, up to this point, he has baptized Jesus in the river Jordan, and upon doing so, heard a voice from heaven declaring Jesus to be God's son with whom God is well pleased. John the Baptist has also made statements that he's unfit to tie the straps of Jesus' sandals, that, that Jesus must become greater and he must become less. And he's even declared this, that behold, he's looking at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, which, which is an absolutely remarkable thing for him at the beginning of the Gospel of John to know and say. And yet, being who he is, after experiencing what he's experienced and confessing what he's confessed, in Matthew chapter 11, we find John asking an absolutely mind-boggling question. Are you the one to come? Or, or should we expect somebody else? This, this man who previously had had such insight, such faith, now appears to doubt if Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Years ago, theologian Oz Guinness wrote a, a great book on the subject of doubt, where he defined doubt this way. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. So that it is neither of them holy, and it is each of them only partially. In other words, doubt is not a rejection of belief. It's not unbelief. Sometimes you may hear it used that way, but doubt and unbelief are two different things. Nor is doubt skepticism. We think skepticism, we... we, we, we sort of think of someone who's kind of perpetually, um, 
you know, living in a state of suspicion towards belief. Instead, what doubt is, is it's a, it's a struggle to believe, or it's questions regarding belief. It's an inner conflict. It's a wrestling with belief. But here's what I want us to keep in mind before. This was sort of mind-blowing for me the first time I read it. I was like, I've got I to write that down and not think about it again. Um, doubt comes from the perspective of belief. Let me repeat that. Doubt comes out of the perspective of belief. In other words, you can't doubt what isn't yours. To doubt something means you believe it, but are struggling with that belief. Otherwise, you would just have unbelief. Philosopher and theologian uh, Sjorn Kierkegaard made this point by saying this, doubt comes into the world through faith. And it's this struggle to believe that we hear articulated in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 39. Father of a demon-possessed man comes to Jesus. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. Jesus responds, if I can, all things are possible for those who believe. The Father cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Belief. Belief is present. But there's unbelief too. And this is a perfect picture of what it means to doubt. And it's what we see in John the Baptist as well. John the Baptist is not rejecting Jesus. He's not giving up his hope. He's not denying what he's experienced in the past. He's not renouncing his faith. But he's struggling. Why? Why is John the Baptist struggling with faith? Brings us to our second question for the morning. Why might believers experience doubt? And of course there's there's many. There's as many as people in this room, if not more. We couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of why people experience doubt. But for John the Baptist, I want to point out first what isn't the reason he's struggling to believe. The passage we talked about before, James chapter 1, verse 6. If you want to go back and look at that later, just as kind of a reference point, uh, that's, that's the verse I'm going to be kind of appealing to from time to time. James chapter 1, verse 6, describes the person who doubts as like a person tossed around by the waves of the sea. Someone who is, it literally uses the word, unstable. Who is internally divided against themselves. That's the person James 1, 6 describes. Okay? And certainly, let's be fair, certainly our doubts can come from hearts that are internally divided. Hearts that struggle to trust God and to take him at his word and place our lives in his hands. We shouldn't deny that that our struggles with faith could be, could be, the result of our faithlessness. And that doubt becomes all the more probable when we're embracing sin. If we're sort of living in in this running from God, if we're hardening hardening our hearts towards him, if we're doing this, of course he's going to seem more distant. And it would only follow then that we wouldn't feel as close to him. We begin to doubt his presence, his affection towards us, his provision in our lives, or even doubt if if he's there. 
This was the reason that Jesus actually, or John the Baptist actually had to come before Jesus. He was coming to prepare the way. He was coming to, to call people to repentance. He was coming to, to, I mean, think like prepare the way, think like a tree in the middle of the road. He's clearing the debris so that people will see the Messiah clearly. And so when we have doubts, taking inventory on our spiritual lives is an appropriate thing to do. But having said that, Notice how Jesus describes John in verse 7. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, look. What did you see? Or what did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? It's a rhetorical question. The answer to that is no. John is not simply some reed shaken by the wind. John is not some fickle individual vacillating between faithfulness to his God versus unfaithfulness. John isn't the picture of a man being tossed about by the waves. John even goes as far as to say, or Jesus even goes as far as saying, verse 11, he's the greatest human being who's lived up to that point. And yet, John experienced doubts about Jesus. And, and while I don't want us to to relish in someone else's difficulties, the fact that John the Baptist had moments of doubt about Jesus should be a great encouragement to us for at least two reasons. First, if he can doubt, then certainly there is the potential for the rest of us to doubt as well. But second, his doubting was not the kind of doubting that James describes. Our doubting is not necessarily the result of some type of spiritual failure on our part, as some of us may have felt before about doubting, or may have even been led to believe. And so, if John's doubts are not necessarily the result of spiritual failure, what then is the cause of his doubts? Well, one of the reasons had to be circumstances. Look at verse 2. It tells us that John is in prison which later on in Matthew chapter 14, we'll find out that that he's in prison because he confronted the establishment concerning wicked behavior that it was involved in. And so he's been unjustly placed in prison. In the coming chapters, he's going to be beheaded. John is being brutally punished for being faithful to his God and doing what God called him to do. He is personally encountering injustice, pain, hunger, And no telling what else in a first century Middle Eastern prison. He's in the midst of emotional, physical, psychological, spiritual turmoil. And it's leading him to wonder. To ask questions. And while our experiences may not be as traumatic, they may be. Many of us who've experienced doubt struggle for this reason. In the midst of painful, unjust, or just exhausting circumstances, perhaps for ourselves, perhaps for family members or or friends, perhaps watching what seems to be absolute chaos in the world around us. Certainly the tragic images that we've witnessed this week from Florida come to mind. In all of this, there, there can be this sense of dissonance between the faith we profess and what we are experiencing in a given moment. When we see brokenness, when we see the brokenness within ourselves, the world around us, and walls begin begin caving in around us, 
when tragedy occurs, when, when the inexplicable takes place, we wonder. We wonder why. Our call to worship this morning came from Psalm chapter 73. It's one of my favorite psalms. And, and he talks about it, if you, if you go back and look at it, he talks about, okay, the, you know, surely God's good to Israel, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. If you go back and read Psalm 73, it talks about the fact, what, what was going to lead him to slip? We didn't get into it. But it's seeing evil win. It's driving him crazy. Evil is winning right now. The bad people are winning. The dishonest are thriving. The innocent are suffering. And the psalmist wonders aloud, why? After all, God, he's all-powerful, right? He can fix this. He's loving. He delights in giving good gifts. Why, then, is this happening? Certainly, this was the case for John the Baptist. It's also fair to say that, that John the Baptist's doubts also come from unfulfilled expectations. Remember that John's message was, was one of repentance, but it was repentance with the threat of judgment. At one point, John, pretty bold dude, looked at the Pharisees and, and called them a brood of vipers, um, talks about an axe ready to be cut on the tree. So John sees Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're supposed to be the one to come in, and heads are going to roll, whatever that means. It means maybe the Romans are going down, or maybe the Pharisees are going to be ousted, whatever. Where's the fireworks, Jesus? What's happening right now? Because I thought it was going to be this way, and your arrival has not been as I envisioned it. Instead, according to verse 1, Jesus is just going and teaching. He's preaching. He's healing people along the way. And this does not meet up with what John had in mind. Gets us to another example of why we might doubt God. Because we expect God to do certain things. We expect him to meet particular needs. And so often, things don't turn out the way we thought they would. Now, that can happen for couple of reasons. It can happen because we are expecting things that God has never promised. Have you ever heard the term prosperity theology before? Kind of associate that with televangelists, you know, call right now, give your money and whatever good stuff, that kind of thing. There's a subtle prosperity theology within a good chunk of American evangelicalism. It goes like this. If I'm a good person, and I believe in Jesus, life's going to pretty well go okay. I mean, well, you got the occasional hiccup, occasional bump in the road, but life's going to go pretty well. That may not be name it and claim it, but do we not all kind of think that way a little bit? And here's the thing. God hadn't really promised that necessarily, okay? But doubts begin to sue about God because we've expected him to fulfill promises that he's never made. But, in John's case, God's made a lot of promises. And these promises don't look as if, or the way that he has envisioned it. He's fulfilling these promises differently than the way he thought he should. Additionally, doubts can come because we're being forced to be patient. Because God's timing isn't always our timing. Now, again, those are just examples that we see from, from John. I mean, there's so many other reasons why we can come in here with our, our share of doubts. Intellectual, 
obstacles to the faith, a, a faith that, that lacks tremendous depth and kind of gets rocked at some point, social stigma associated with Christianity, negative experiences with Christians. The list goes on and on and on. My hope for us here at Grace Community Church is that this can be a safe place. A safe place for unbelievers to come and hear the good news of Jesus. But it would also be a safe place for believers who are part of this church or maybe just kind of around this church to ask questions, to wrestle with their doubts. And that wouldn't just be like rhetoric. That's a nice idea, you know? But, but it would be kind of in the water around here. That, that as a faith community, we, we can exist in such a way that, that doubts and honesty about them are, dare I say, encouraged? Not that we try to, like, cultivate doubt but that we are able to handle it. What we saw in the uh, page three of your, of your folder, we saw I mean, just a little one-page epistle of Jude. It's a great little verse. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. My hope is, is, that, is that here at GCC that we would extend grace to those who are struggling because that's what Scripture calls us to be. That we we want to be that kind of place. And yet, and yet, at the same time, we, we also realize that, that doubt is not something that just gets fixed, right? I got my doubt, fixed it, done, move on with my life. That, that there's a struggle in that. But the hope is that our shared life together not only allows for a struggle with faith, but it also moves us towards a greater experience with faith as well. In some Christian circles, it's, it's, it's almost become like cool to doubt. Cool to sort of think about, and it's, it's kind of reacting against the Sister Aloysius stuff, the certainty, embracing certainty. And so there's kind of this, let's embrace uncertainty. Let's celebrate how little we know of the things of God without much hope or even the desire to, to understand more. A while back, I came across a statement that articulates this mindset well. It's really cool to search for God. It's not very cool to find him. The reality of doubt is something that that at time to time we may experience. But there's also the need for us pushing back on it. Doubt's not something to celebrate or to live in perpetually. It's going to bring us to our final point for the day. What do we need to do with doubt? If we have doubts, what do we do with them? And what we see in John the Baptist is a perfect example. First of all, John's honest. He owns up to it. His circumstances are tragic. When he's disillusioned by his expectations not being realized, when he's struggling with faith, he doesn't do... The, the two things that we're potentially so tempted to maybe do. First of all, ignore our doubts. Pretend they're not there. Suppress them. Knuckle down. Have more faith. He didn't do that. But he also doesn't wallow in it either. He doesn't allow his doubts 
to sow seeds of disbelief in his heart. Instead, he's honest about his struggles. He acknowledges them for what they are. But then he does something else. He takes his doubts about Jesus to Jesus. He sends his disciples to Jesus and asks them the tough question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another one? Which, of course, would be a hard thing to ask, right? I mean, having experienced what you've experienced, said what you've said, and all that, well, that that's got to be kind of tough for John to, to own up to, to admit that he's struggling. Because, I mean, did you see all the good stuff that Jesus had said about John the Baptist? Best guy ever! There might be the thought that, like, if I start showing vulnerability, weakness, doubt, then... Jesus might have to take some of that stuff back. He might have to rethink that. I'm not so sure. You know, from my experience, a good number of Christians doubt, for for us, a good number of Christians, doubt is not really something that we feel comfortable talking about. And I can't help but think that one of the reasons why has to do um, with really a misunderstanding about salvation. A misunderstanding uh, as it relates to what actually saves us. You see, if faith is what saves us, then it's going to be probably pretty tough to admit that you're struggling with faith. Because all of a sudden, your salvation's potentially up in the air. But according to Ephesians chapter 2, one of those great passages, we are saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace expressed through the person and work of Jesus by his perfect life, by his atoning death, by his resurrection, by what he accomplished on our behalf. Now, the way we come to experience that is through faith. Through our placing our trust in him. But faith, in and of itself, doesn't save anyone. Because here's the thing. I mean, you see movies all the time, like faith, faith. This movie's about family and faith. And we're like, oh, more my, you know. Here's the thing. Everybody has faith. Every human being on the planet is believing in something. You can't exist as a human being in this world and not be trusting in something to give you life to give you meaning, to give you hope in the midst of a broken world. Even the question that John asks shows this. Are you the one to come? Or should I be looking for somebody else? Because here's the thing. i got to put my hope in something. And if you're not the person I'm supposed to be putting my faith in, please, please tell me. But the reason that John can do this is because he knows that Jesus can handle his doubts. Because John's ability, here's the point, John's ability to believe well is not what saves him. He needs a savior to save him. And the same is true for us. We are not saved by how strong our faith is. 
Because that wavers. It's all over the place. Rather, we're saved by the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.13 puts it this way. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so Jesus begins to speak into John's doubts. First of all, he appeals to Scripture, not some proof texting, you know, just slap Romans 8.28 on it. Good verse, but how we handle truth, how we handle God's Word with hurting people is really important for us to think through. But he handles it in a way that is life-giving, and he does so by connecting God's Word to to not ideas or concepts, but to a person, to himself, to what he is doing. He says this, the blind have received sight, the lame have walked, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being preached to the poor. That's from Isaiah. And it's the vision that Isaiah had of the new heavens of new earth, this, this perfect world that God is going to usher in. And though your situation has still a tremendous amount of pain and suffering and brokenness in it, glimpses of the kingdom are coming. And I am making all things new. And we need to hear this as well. We need to hear the promises of what God is planning to do in the future and is even doing right now in our midst. That's why we we do the testimony thing, because we we believe that, that, okay, Jesus didn't just die and you know he's coming back and in the middle is just kind of like we're just kind of killing time until then that God is at work even now in our midst doing supernatural things behind the scenes that, that we need to be reminded of we need to hear from Jesus we need to be able to connect what God has promised in his word to our experiences of that and he is at work There's also something very profound about the fact that John the Baptist's disciples are the ones telling him about what Jesus said. I I know I've I've got like reverend in front of my name, right? So, I mean, I'm supposed to really get this, right? You know, the, the person who has pointed these people to the reality is now being told by the people about that reality. There is something profoundly encouraging to me about coming up here and standing on the stage and watching you sing. That's really important. It's good for your own soul to sing your praises to God, but it's good for each other. It's good for me. We need to preach the gospel to one another. We need to, in our moments where we're, we're, you know what, I'm really trusting Jesus today. I want to give thanks for him. But to be able to point to somebody who's struggling with that right now, there's something beautiful about the fact that John's disciples are now telling John of the good news that he told them before. It's the nature of being part of the church, a place where where God has promised to be at work as we are faithful to his word, to preach this gospel, and to live out this gospel together. Jesus then says one last thing. This is where I'll, I'll close Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, verse 6. Here Jesus acknowledges something very important, that what he is going to do 
and say is not always going to meet our expectations. It's not necessarily going to look like what we think it's going to look like. In fact, it very well may be offensive. Don't get offended. It's offensive. Certainly, John the Baptist would have loved for messengers to have come back and said, you know what, Jesus is going to break out of jail any moment. But he doesn't. And so Jesus tells him he's going to have to trust him. Same is true for us. And we're going to struggle. Faith is hard. We want to be a place where we can acknowledge the fact that faith can be very, very hard. But we also want to be a place that, that is not content to wallow in disbelief, but can push back and to see the goodness of God and his promises through the person and work of Jesus in our midst. But the good news, again, I'll wrap with this, that because our salvation is in Jesus and not necessarily in our faith, we can trust that, that all of our enemies, even including doubt, have been stripped of their power. That in the same way that God can take the horrific events of the cross and use it for his good purposes, God can take our doubts and use them for our good and for his glory. And the reason why is because even in our doubts, we have someone who has overcome doubt for us. We have someone who's been faithful even when we were not, who died in the place of doubters, doubters like us, who trust not in our ability, but in Christ alone. Let me pray for us. God, we give you thanks for John the Baptist. We give you thanks that his faith was, was real and that he was willing to be honest about his struggles and I pray the same for us in this room, that either we would not cultivate or, or wallow in our struggles, Lord, but we would be honest about them. We could share them. Father, you could even use them. I pray for GCC. I pray, Father, this would be a place where we could have an honest and real faith and, and Father, be people who can struggle and serve and love and celebrate Um, your work in our midst and and be strong for one another when some of us aren't. Help us to be that place by your spirit. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.